This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me, you not gonna do nothing, you are not above me, I bet you wish you was me, I know it, I know. What's up everybody and welcome to another episode of the Only Friends Podcast. Today we are coming to you from a very wet and rainy Las Vegas, Nevada. We had some spotty internet issues so uh if you lose us at some point throughout the show we'll do what we can but uh i don't know I don't blame it on the rain blame <laughs> all right millie vanilli relax <laughs> over there uh i definitely don't have a lot of faith in cox uh we're joined today by a very special guest victoria live shits i hope i got that right is it even close pretty, pretty close okay pretty close right. pretty close <laughs> how, how would you pronounce it yeah, lift it. In your, in your Montana lift accent. Yeah, yeah. lift okay. is good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, before we get into uh, speaking with her, uh, I just want to make a quick announcement. We did sell out the Academy. I guess uh, offering for you guys to play Poker Out Loud did, did a number in selling those seats. They were just gonzo. Um, so we have new dates to announce. Uh, March 20th to, through the 23rd will be our next Poker Out Loud style Academy. It's here in Las Vegas, Nevada. If you're interested in that, oh, I put the wrong... Man, this is why I need a graphic designer. I put the wrong website up. It's academy.solveforwide.io, not solveforwide.io. Okay. Uh, I'll get that changed, you know, grunt work. <laughs> I got to do all the grunt... Landon, you, you seem like you'd be really good at graphic design, Landon. Have we had this conversation? We haven't. If they do go to uh, solveforwide.io... At the in the uh, you know the header, there is an academy merch link that that's they can right. just click on. So. They can just click on it. They'll find it if they really if they want to get there. They'll get there. That's true. You're right. They find a way. No, in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do as a career, mm. and what I settled on during like physics class and graphic design or design tech, I would make headers and stuff using Photoshop. Okay. Like Twitter banner headers. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Stuff like that. He's had this hidden talent a lot of memes. Whole, the whole time. And I was in the gaming scene, yeah. So I looked up a bunch of stuff on how to do graphic design and headers. But Would you like to be our meme designer? Most certainly not. Mm. Okay. You well, can't make my, my hobby a profession. I, yep. Hey, if you love what you do, is it really work? When I'm doing it for someone else, it's work. You're, do, you're doing it for the greater good of the company. That's basically for yourself. CMO. It's G not. It's, it's certainly not. I don't know. I, I think we could do this. Victoria, <laughs> I actually have you to thank. Uh, Landon's production within the company over the last few months has basically quadrupled. And I think it's because you kind of sat him down and was like, hey, you own equity in something. Make it bigger and make some money. I'm delighted to hear that we did have some talks. Yeah. Glad to see it had some impact. It, it, listen, when you speak, he listens. That much I'm <laughs> very, very certain of. As he should. You are very well decorated in the uh, startup industry tech space, so to speak. Uh, I found out you're actually the founder and CEO of 11 companies, where I, here I thought it was a mere four. I didn't mean to slight you such <laughs> like that. <laughs> Uh, you're currently running and operating two while developing a third and just, you know, crushing poker in your spare time, I guess. Oh, it's work in progress. Okay. Learning, learning to crush poker. Sure. Uh, your results have been fairly good so far. You, you're strictly tournament, right? Strictly tournament. I, I play cash sometimes 
very infrequent these days. Like if MTT goes really bad, I might try to drown my sorrow at the <laughs> cash table to win there. or something. But yeah. other than that, yeah. That's good. Uh, and you're happy with the progress so far? Well, I, you know, 2022 was really my first year of uh, like studying poker and playing poker seriously. Mm -hmm. Until that, I sort of knew how to play and I would play, yeah, like low stake uh, cash games from time to time after work to just sort of as a entertainment or relaxation. And I wasn't uh, very much a winning player at 2-5 either. Uh, but about a year ago, I just kind of fell in love with the game and decided to take it seriously. It's been a crazy year. I've played... I just focused on tournaments and played some of the largest buy-in events around around the world, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been good. Did it, did I see correctly? You posted your results somewhere. I did on Twitter. Um, I've summarized last year. Um, I uh, I made like eleven or twelve final tables. I won two high roller titles. Um, yeah, maybe twenty five times. That's like profitable year. No. <laughs> that's, right. that's the rub. <laughs> no, not at all. That's the rub. But you know what? I don't mind. Let's put it this way. I didn't really expect this first year to be profitable year. I expected to be a big loser. Um, I lost less than I expected, given that I played 25Ks, 50Ks. Yep. Um, this is my first year in poker. I am trying to optimize, like in many cases and in other investments, kind of time to money rather than ongoing profitability i want to learn fast and so you know you have to pay yeah, your for first year it. you have you, to pay for you it you jumped right into like the top of the top the highest stakes and the uh yeah it's kind of funny my very first mtt was was a 25k that's wow yeah, <laughs> yeah. An, an insane, yeah. An insane way to get started but in some ways i, I think it's working yeah for sure. what made you fall in love with poker as a whole like why did you decide to stay um so, yeah, I'll go back to COVID, all the things that I occupied myself with outside of work, entrepreneurship, I, um, I spent, by then I was spending a lot of time in the mountains, like mountains, mountaineering, hiking, that's, that's my huge passion and, uh, and love, and, and I was trying to get London, you know, get hooked on that as well, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mar marginal success, I guess, with that. <laughs> Uh, but I, in I any like it. I just fucked up my knee. Mentally, he's there. <laughs> Physically, <laughs> is a different story. I'll be there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, you know, all that went away uh, during during COVID. I was cooped up in the house, um, like many of us are. I lived with older mom, so uh, like very very strict quarantine rules for a very long time. Uh, so I needed to find something to do, and my guilty pleasure became just watching high stake poker. And, and, and that's, that's all I did, and, and mostly tournament final tables. And I just completely addicted to that. And then when the um, uh, quarantine was over, it was uh, September of last year. No, September 2021. Um, I just had this thought, I haven't had a vacation forever. And then the World Series was starting in October, right? And I'm like, well, what if I took 10 days off and I went to Vegas and I had myself poker vacation? So that's literally how it started. So I did end up arriving at Vegas and looked at the schedule and like the very first event next day was 25K. And I'm like, okay, here's a plan. I'm gonna enter this tournament with the idea that I could actually see all these heroes of mine that I've just been watching you know, on TV. I can actually see them across the field. Yeah. Uh, let me just kind of do that and, and, see, and see what happens. Hmm. And um, some magical things happened, so it worked out. Yeah, I remember the first time that we met was when uh, the Win 3500 was going on. Yeah. When you were hanging out with Chewy and Philip. Yeah. And they were like, oh, hey. I was like, oh, hi. Like, this is Victoria. 
It's like, oh, okay. Hello. <laughs> that is very true. And now we're here, and then I went on a hike with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, by then, I, I somehow managed to start playing Poker Goes. I managed to final table with Nick Schulman. I managed to get, I think, in that win main event, I think I took 23rd or something. So, yeah, I just started having early successes and obviously got hooked. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about that kind of onboarding process, especially as somebody who's successful or as successful as you've been at building and growing uh, business and infrastructure. I'm sure a lot of that translates over. How did you go about kind of immersing yourself in the game and uh, fast tracking the learning process aside from like developing a decent network? Like, obviously, we know that you're close with Chewy and Shulman and all those guys, but well, it happened a little later. So, so yeah, how, how, how do you go about setting a really impossible task and then giving yourself a shot at succeeding, right? That, that's kind of a theme, I think. That's the theme with any entrepreneurship. That's the theme with starting any, any business worth starting. And poker is not dissimilar. I'm probably attacking it the same way I've attacked other kind of epic, epic journeys of the past. Um, you know, going back to this 25K, uh, it's, it's just interesting how fortunes work. So I was at the, I got seated at the table. It was an absolutely star-studded table. There was uh, Jason Kuhn on, across me, Stevie Chadwick on my, on my left. The only person I didn't know about at this table was Sam Grafton. Um, so the he, fish, obviously. Yeah, he, he, just, he just wasn't in the universe of tables that I've watched, right? But obviously, I mean, Sam is just, a, just, just, I mean, Sam is Sam. So anyways, the banter at the table, the chatting that was going on. Um, Sam was chatting? Yeah, Come on, imagine stop that. It. Imagine that. <laughs> Sam actually, so Sam was on to something and he mentioned some chess player of like 100 or 200 years ago. Um, and I, I perked up because I grew up playing chess. I was, this was my, my, my thing. And my first business, you know, going back to the history was Professional Chess Academy. That's kind of how a lot of things started. So that name wasn't familiar to me. So I've questioned the great Sam Grafton's mm. accuracy on that topic, which perked up interest <laughs> of everybody else at the table. Wikipedia was brought in and uh, Sam stood corrected, which also I don't think happens very often. Agreed. Um, chemistry kind of kicked off. And then um, Sam ended up busting me on a, on a, on a dramatic hand set over sets or in quads. Um, anyways, after that, you know, nice investment of 25K. Sam and I developed some of the relationship. We started seeing each other in other tournaments. We started chatting at the breaks. And then a few days later, I caught him up on the break and said, look, I really want to study this seriously. You seem to know everybody. Um, um, can you recommend a coach? And he said, well, I'm not half bad. Uh, <laughs> and then you try to look for someone else. And, uh, <laughs> no, and, and we started working with Sam. So he was actually yeah. the first one who got me started. Okay. Um, and then, you know, later, maybe six or seven months down the road, by then I've, I've got to know Chewie pretty well. And, uh, you know, that whole gang, we've kind of made a pack that they'll teach me poker, I'll teach them business. And uh, that's been a lot of fun for everybody. Since it's been then. very fun. It's, it's funny because I'm sure from your perspective, <laughs> you think that that's a fair exchange. It's but so I not promise fair. you, it's so asymmetrical to what they're getting in return. I don't know about this. I always felt like I won the lottery ticket, and uh, they tell me they feel the same. So I guess it's just, uh, it's just, it's just win-win. Well, I think we're all aware of survivorship bias, right? Like, <laughs> it's it's difficult to be successful in any endeavor and not recognize that a lot of things had to fall in favor for you to actually make it. But Very much so. Right, but like that that should never uh, come in or stand in the way of like recognizing 
brilliance and the ability to actually accomplish these things inherently, right? And I don't know you that well, but having had a few conversations with you, I think it's abundantly clear that you're very good at what you do. You're an incredibly intelligent individual. And it's one of those things where certain people, I think, are always going to succeed in spite of the circumstance. Like maybe you don't end up being uh, an entrepreneur and uh, a, a startup developer or uh, a VC or anything along those lines, but you might have just ended up being like the most talented something else. You know, whatever, whatever kind of hurdles well, get in your way. My own career seemed to go in chapters and I got really excited about something which is radically different from anything I've ever done before. And then that becomes the huge mission and passion. And I've been lucky to get uh, successful in these things and then find some completely different other chapter. Like, for example, mountaineering, I found that very late in life. And that became big obsession. And, uh, and then poker is yet another one. Um, but I think the way I kind of think about it, the unified theme of poker and life and just generally success and very complicated missions, I mean, variance is out there. Sure. Variance is massive. Uh, you can't control it, uh, but you can control to a very large extent your success in the fields with, with, with massive variance. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding to. Yeah. If you're doing the right things, uh, you know, eventually with very high degree of, uh, of probability, you'll, you'll be successful, just like poker players are, despite the fact that on any given tournament they could uh, dust or, or the next 10 or next 30 with, with a really bad variance, you know, right. looking, looking the wrong way. We, we talked about, you and I, we talked about your MTTs at the start when you were in tech about job applications for really high, highly coveted positions that just kind of ended up working out. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a theme. Um, you know, my theme is, uh, uh, you know, I try to pick goals that are just epic enough that just pursuing them is self-gratifying. Self and then, then achieving them is, is, is sort of icing on the cake. Um, and it's been working out well. So before we dig in more into the poker, because uh, I know that you have a new project that is uh, certainly worth highlighting and getting more details uh, on, uh, I kind of want to understand a little bit better about sure. how you got to this point and how you're funding all these big buy-ins. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> let's, 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 let's go there. So, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> starting kind of from the beginning, uh, are you, I assume you're not actually born and raised in Montana. <laughs> safe assumption? That's probably a pretty safe assumption. I've been there for about two and a half years. Okay, when did you, when did you uh, come to the States? And uh, I guess, like, let's pick up from there. Yes. Yeah, well, very basic facts. I was born in Ukraine. I was about 10 years old when my family moved to Lithuania. And so I grew up in Lithuania. Okay. Uh, I grew up playing, playing a lot of chess on the, on the national team, winning some Lithuanian championships. Um, so chess was kind of a really, really big theme. Chess and mathematics so were sort of two things that... I was really into kind of my, my, entire, my entire life. Um, and then, um, like really early on, I was, uh, I was 17, I was first year in college. You know, Iron Curtain started to open up just, just a little bit. And as chess players, we were allowed to start traveling and playing internationally. Still in the Eastern Bloc, but still at, at least outside. So, 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 so there was a bunch of tournaments that were run in Eastern Europe, particularly all the areas. Sofia was known to run a lot of them. So I went for a, for a chess tournament. I, on the first day of the tournament, I met this 
very cute guy from the Ukrainian team. And on the last day of the tournament, he proposed. And uh, I kind of came back engaged. Uh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> which Life was, comes at you fast. Victoria yeah. goes hard. I'm, scared. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm adventurer, right? I mean, yeah. those traits were very early. <laughs> and so before I knew, like, all the, all the like, blueprint for life, okay, you go to school, you, you finish, you go to your PhD, you become a mathematician, you have academic career, all that straight out the window. So I get married very fast, like three months later, it's like, whoops, I think we have a kid on the way. Um, <laughs> and, and then Soviet Union fell apart. And, um, you know, by the time I was 20 in, in 1991, mm -hmm. we had a one-way ticket on Pan Am with a two-month-old baby and a suitcase of dirty diapers and 500 bucks in a, in a pocket. And we landed in a splendid city of Cleveland to Try to build a new life in, in the States. You know, we're from Pittsburgh. <laughs> um, oh, neighbors. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Not so friendly rivals. <laughs> Not so friendly neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> the Clevelanders. Uh, That's right. So how long were you and your family in Cleveland? And what were you doing at the time? Were you so, just stay-at-home mom? Or? So uh, I stayed-home mom for as long as it took to find a job. It was kind of hard to find jobs in 1991. It was a... Uh, recession time mm -hmm. i remember driving knocking on windows with help wanted ads trying to get any kind of job ended up getting a job in a dry cleaning uh where i was ironing shirts in the back and looking through a little window to make sure that whoever was on the on the cash register wasn't stealing money um so it was humble beginning to a to a professional career but you know four bucks an hour you could make a living on it we could we did we needed to at the time but it didn't last very long because um, literally a few months after that, Plain Dealer, which is a local newsletter, newspaper in, in uh, uh, Cleveland area, popular, decided to organize. They kind of heard about me and Leonard, uh, my, my ex, my husband at the time, uh, that we were chess players that just moved to Cleveland. Um, and they got interested in the story and they said, let's organize simultaneous exhibition for Victoria. Okay, this young 20-year-old, you know, ex-Russian star, you know, coming here. Um, so it was a sunny day in the park. They advertise anybody who wants to come and play simultaneous exhibition, you know, please do so. 27 people showed up. Um, and so I had this epic six-hour battle, um, which uh, went pretty well for me. And uh, by the end of this day, Leifschitz Chess Academy was born. We pretty much just signed up most of the people who came to play with me as our students. And... Um, and, and open the business, and, and that was kind of the real start. You won all the games, correct? I did not win all Damn. the games. I did not win all the games. I won 20, uh, 23, I lost three, and I drew one. Hmm. Most of the games. <laughs> pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, oh, I have so many follow-ups from that. Uh, so a quick aside. Uh, but that's 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 kind of it. And then then I got myself three more jobs, uh, programming jobs. It was, you know, I went to Case Western Reserve at the time to finish education in computer science. Uh, so I worked night jobs, writing backups. I was doing software test engineering, like whatever it took. So, so yeah. So at the time, you're a mom. You're a programmer. Yeah. You are also running a startup. That's right. Where where did you find the time for this? This is just uh, in your blood. I don't know. Uh, I mean, at the time, yeah, you just do what you have to do. I mean, it's a hardcore survival, so you, you prioritize survival over everything else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my, you know, my peers at the time were just goofing off, you know, as normal college students, but we, uh, 
we need to do something else. So uh, that's, I think, just self-selective. You, you just prioritize things that's important and survival was important. Do you, do you think part of this is like cultural to where you're born and raised? Because like this level of resiliency, whenever you are clearly a brilliant individual who's willing to go knock on doors and work a minimum wage job to get by, is something that I think you don't necessarily see in uh, you know, nations like the United States where everybody has it pretty cushy. No, I actually see it very differently. I actually see it as you know, very iconic first-generation immigrant kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I think America was very much built on that. That's pretty much the story of every successful immigrant. Yeah. It just I think things change with generations because the first generation have to make it here um, and make it through. Um, and then, um, you know, if they're successful and become middle class or upper class and kids that are born uh then they often retain uh a lot of similar habits because they just see their parents struggle yeah but by the time you get to the third generation i think a lot of it just just changes dramatically there's a there's a phrase that i uh, i've heard numerous times that i really like and i think it applies to kind of the history of the united states and it says that uh hard men create good times Good times create soft men. Soft <laughs> men create bad times. Bad times create hard men. And that's kind four, of... Four cycles, huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, there might be something to it. Yeah, it seems like the cyclical nature of just like human... Like shifting from kind of like a survivor mindset to an abundance mi mindset and then getting lazy and watching the, the four walls that you built kind of crumble around you. Yeah, so maybe from those days, I kind of got used to have a very crazy workouts, but... Uh, I, um, I also just love doing stuff. And so I think it became just theme. I would feel every minute of every day to the brim with things that I, that I could do. Um, I had kids who were growing up. I had job. I had things that I was, I was interested in. I remember, though, that all through my youth, not getting enough sleep was just a, a perpetual problem. Mm -hmm. I was just perpetually sleep deprived. Um, and then something, something very strange and very weird happened, jumping a little more into the entrepreneurial phase. My, my claim to fame as an entrepreneur is building a tech company called Grid Dynamics. Okay. I know we'll jump into it at some point in time. I might as well do it now. Let's and do then it we now. can kind of take it from there. And a precursor to that, uh, after finishing case, I, I joined the tech and I joined the tech world uh, uh, right at the time where internet was starting to take off. Um, and I was very much part of that movement. I, I, I joined a company called Sun, Micro, Sun Microsystems, inventor of Java and, and a lot of modern technologies. I know and, Sun very well. In 1997, and, and I joined when Java, the, the language that sort of created the internet, was it's super, super, super infancy, and that was the language that I studied when it was in infancy. So I joined Sun as, I think, the first official Java architect. That was just such a cool title to have and yeah. such a cool company to join. Um, and then I spent uh, professionally working for Sun, basically about 10 years, building some of the largest um, internet infrastructures of its time. So I became uh, architect of uh, General Motors, architect of uh, um, automotive in principle. Then I switched to Wall Street. I built some of the largest uh, real-time trading systems and, and things of that sort that you could do with new technologies. Uh, my clients were companies like Visa, I don't know, Wells Fargo, Schwab, this emerging new tech infrastructure. I was building a lot of, a lot of radically new systems. Uh, and, and, then, and then my last claim to fame, finishing up my, my tech uh, phase, if you will, um, Sun had a, a bright idea to essentially invent the cloud. 
the, the, the last known fact is that the Sun was the company who built the first commercial cloud offering. I was, I was drafted in the team who, who built the first cloud. Wow. So I, I got to build it as a part of, uh, part of a small team. And uh, that was 2004, 2005. And working on that project, I kind of became convinced that that's next, the, be the next big thing mm -hmm. in, uh, in computing. I was, uh, I was 30, 34 at the time, and I kind of felt that I had enough of the enterprises, and I want to go on my own. Uh, and I ended up starting a company called Grid Dynamics in 2006 with the idea of basically being the first cloud engineering company and offering services to anybody, big corporations, who wanted to build their own cloud infrastructures, helping to teach them how to do that and, and do that for them. And, and the timing was perfect. I started the company, I think I quit my job on like uh, August 24th of 2006. And two weeks later, I held a check for half a million dollars from PayPal, hiring me to go basically help them build their first cloud. And I was like, well, I don't have a bank account. They're like, send me an invoice. I'm like, what's an invoice? You sound like uh, me. <laughs> amazing. There's hope for me after all. There's hope. And so, so yeah, so, so, so that's great. Um, and we could, I could take more questions. I'm sure you'll, you'll want to go there uh, afterwards. Yeah, but keep going. Back, to, back to sleep. So I had three kids at the time. So, so, so I, I was 35. I had three kids. My youngest was four. No, Daniel was, maybe he was six. Um, and um, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I've, I've never mm. done anything at that scale. Um, and the company was global. And so I had engineering in Eastern Europe. So their waking hours were California time. And I lived in California at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, between like midnight and 8 a.m. So I had to grow my engineering team and oversee them and teach them everything. Uh, so all night long I would work with them and then days I would spend, you know, selling or holding customers' hand or whatnot. I didn't, so it was just me and in my kitchen for the first year and these incredibly bright engineers, uh, you know, in offshore. And it was just no time to sleep. So for the next six years, I slept three hours a day. I believe that. Um, three and a half to be, to be exact, without Saturdays, without Sundays, without days off, it just became sustainable. And I don't know if anybody has actually ever done anything like that. There is no studies what this kind of level of sleep deprivation really does to somebody. Certainly don't recommend this, but it's just reality. This sort of happened. And I think then it did eventually, eventually body adopts in yeah. kind of completely unpredictable way. So the thing might, might, you know, my body did what it had to do, figure out how to survive on such a limited amount of sleep. And I ended up, you know, not doing this anymore. Um, but I think it kind of shifted into, I'll take whatever I can get, but if I can't get it, it's fine. Yeah. And so today I can function on, on just very little sleep. It's a nice um, adaptation. So it's, it kind of helps with a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a nice adaptation to have, but I imagine that when it comes to like the recovery mechanisms with the body and everything else, like you'd be a little bit better served health-wise if you were actually. No, getting... I mean it's a terrible idea, and right. I certainly would never do this again. And I yeah. uh, and there is, I mean, I'm glad I didn't see the studies that I saw later that what sleep deprivation actually does to you. I mean, it literally creates like holes in your in your gray matter. So I I don't know what current cell. I'll have to pay for it, you know, one day, but. I mean, what's done is done. I'm not going to dwell over it. Sure. Um, but yeah, for what it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, all that's so like phenomenal to think back. Uh, I, I was 
I'm not that much younger than you, so uh, I too was getting Java shoved down my throat in 2000 when I started going to college, yeah. uh, studying computer science. It was basically the only language that that we were really programming in. A little bit of C plus plus, but they were yep. kind of uh, you know moving everything into object oriented as much as possible. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and when I think of the development of the cloud, I think so much later. And you know, I was not necessarily waiting my feet in that space but uh i was in college from 2000 to 2005 we didn't know anything about cloud computing at that yeah. point and uh you know it, with poker and everything else we didn't really start using cloud technology until maybe the past three to five years yeah absolutely so it's pretty remarkable that you were on the forefront of that uh, what a huge opportunity and to to be able to like you know have the foresight to develop a company that says like this is it it's kind of people who are like looking at, uh, you know, things like AI and NFTs and uh, the, these other new spaces now. We, we've seen it happen enough, right? With the dot-com bubble and then moving into the advancement of like cloud technology and all this other stuff, we see that it's rapidly moving. And with every single movement in yeah. the tech space, there's opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think like, you know, your wherewithal to be able to capitalize on that and take over is worth so much. But you said you left tech. So where did your, where did your uh, attention shift to? So after so, so grid, grid, grid dynamics and, and kind of the, the funny side story in it, the reason why it's called grid dynamics is that the previous to cloud generation, there were things called grid computing. Mm -hmm. And there were, I would say, precursors to, to, to clouds where ability to essentially string together huge sets of computers into a computational grid. That's where the word grid comes from. And, um, you know, the world cloud was, word cloud was coined 30 days after I incorporated. So I incorporated as grid dynamics, and then cloud kind of happened 30 days later. Sure. <laughs> if it happened 30 days earlier, it would have been cloud dynamics. Right. But uh, you know, such as such as such such, such as life. Um, anyways, uh, that took long time. The the company kept growing organically. I was the I was the single founder um, and CEO for um, for oh gosh, maybe maybe eight years or so. I think until 2013 or 14, something along those lines. Um, and then, yeah, and then a kind of an, a, also kind of an interesting side story, but, but somewhat important to, to other things. Um, somewhere in that process, family, it, did, it wasn't second, you know, to business, but it certainly took the heat. Yeah. And uh, as often is the case, at some point in time, it became too much. And at some point in time, it, it led to the divorce. Um, and then we, when, we, when we broke up, we kind of split everything in the middle, including the company. Mm -hmm. So now we became equal co-owners of the company, thus business partners. Um, kind of a really Out of one marriage into another. <laughs> exactly. Kind of a really interesting twist. Now, now my, my ex-husband is, is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant man in, in many ways. Um, including technology and entrepreneurship. And so at some point in time, I wanted to go do something else. I actually wanted to start another tech company. Um, and I thought that I wasn't the right CEO to oversee the scaling part of the company. Mm -hmm. We were already, I don't know, 25 or $30 million in sales. We were, we were growing fast. Um, I wanted to go do another startup, uh, kind of a spun off of that company. And then uh, Leonard said, well, how about I become the CEO. And uh, that sounded like a great idea. So he became number one. Um, he's done a tremendous job with the company. I ended up starting the new company, but a couple of years down the line, we just decided that um, 
we needed to merge efforts. We ended up merging the companies. I came back to Grid, this time as number two. Um, help Planner for several more years. We took the company public in, uh, when was it, 2019, I think? Okay. Yeah. Right before COVID. When did COVID start? 2020. 2020. Yeah, okay, March then 2020. Of, March, of 2020. March of 2020. We have a distinction of being the last pre-COVID NASDAQ IPO. Oh, wow. We IPO'd on March 6th. This was Friday. The markets were already going yeah, this, and yeah, we didn't right. know if it will take off or not. But we squeaked right by, we IPO'd on March 6th, we celebrated throughout the weekend, and then on Monday, it just this, this yeah. crashed and, oh and, and you know, skies came down. So, you know, many such cases in the, in, in the history of, I don't know, grid dynamics and, uh, and myself, there is just uh, these larger forces at work. Mm -hmm. yeah, that yeah. in some interesting ways in Iraq with your little, you know, your little boat, yeah. floating amongst really, really big wave. Um, so yeah, but we did have a very successful IPO. I stayed on board, helped to get companies through COVID, which was super dramatic event on top of that. Uh, and then I finally retired completely from that company in um, December of 2021, moved to Montana. And now I could fully focus on the next three companies. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> You, you yeah. glossed over quite a bit there. Yeah. Uh, I feel like there's like six or seven companies that we didn't even there discuss. Were, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there, there were things on the, you know, on the side here and there. but uh, Just side projects, no big deal. Yeah, but the biggest one is that the company that I'm really, you know, all in on is a company called Ride on Track. Okay. It's a company in outdoor recreation space. It's married to my, you know, love affair with the, with the mountains. And it aims to revolutionize outdoor recreation. So I, I, I saw this. This is the one that I, I did a little bit, uh, I wouldn't call it research, but I, yeah. I was perusing. Uh, do I have it right that you guys basically offer uh, guided experiences for people who like kind of want to enjoy the outdoors? Yeah. We, well, if, if I give you sort of the punchline and the big vision and a mission is to create kind of Amazon for outdoor recreation. Okay. One single digital platform where people can discover things they can go do in outdoors mm -hmm. and then procure all the bits and pieces of what they need. Now, that tends to happen away from mobile areas into the little trail towns. Uh, and so you don't have Amazon Prime, you don't have smart lockers, you don't have any of this infrastructure. So right. we are building that. Yep. Uh, so basically a full stack to provide uh, digital products and physical goods and services for everything related to uh, outdoor recreation. It's a, you know, hopefully one day one trillion dollar marketplace. Very, very uh, <laughs> coincidental that that's actually the mission. I was just talking to Landon on the ride over here of how I had that same idea for uh, the the poker space. Yeah. In just creating a one stop platform that covered entertainment, covered uh, you know list schedules, training. Uh, utilities, tools, all, all the things, you know, basically like it's all in one place. I think that's something that these niche industries such as mountaineering or, or outdoors and, you know, poker alike really lack where chess nails it. Chess.com nails it for the most part. Uh, anyway, at least yeah. I don't know that much about chess, but like, yeah, I, yeah. Poker, poker world is definitely super interesting. I'm very new to it. I'm learning. Um, I have a terrible habit of 
uh, falling in love with my hobbies where they stop being hobbies and become obsessions and it doesn't take very long for me to be obsessed with something and then start company in that space. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, there is a there is a there is a poker tech company somewhere in the making. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe you. <laughs> I, I certainly believe you. Um, where 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 to go to from here? Okay, <laughs> we're talking poker. Let, let's let's bring okay. it full circle. You've also uh, because you're bored, I guess. Uh, took on a new project uh, called Poker Queens, and you are basically creating uh, a community for women who want to get introduced to the game, uh, kind of following your footsteps a little bit since, you know, you're still in your first year. Uh, your trajectory is obviously very different than the average woman who's going to get involved. But Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. I'd love to talk a, a little bit about this. And, and, and the hook is this. Um, so I've been in a male-dominated industry my entire life. Mm -hmm. Tech is very much male-dominated. Speaking about starting, I started my career in Detroit. Right? Right. Detroit Automotive in the 90s. Yeah. It's, it's an incredibly male-centric, male-dominant uh, um, culture. So I have kind of a funny, funny story, if you will, from that time. I, uh, I, was often, um, I was often in my time working for Sun, but focusing on automotive, particularly General Motors. Um, and we're talking late, late, late 90s. Okay. I would be the only woman in a room. Sure. I would be, you know, half the age of everybody else. I was whatever, 25, 26, 27. Uh, you know, most of my colleagues were, you know, men in their 40s or 50s, powerful people, directors, vice presidents, what have you. And so Detroit winters are not very different from Montana winters. They're pretty harsh. So you drive to GM Tech Center, you park, you get out, you know, you walk through the snow, uh, you get through security, you get to the you get to the uh, to the room meeting room. You have a meeting, and then usually after that, there's another meeting in some other building. Mm -hmm. And since GM Tech Center was built, whatever 50s, 60s at the time of Cold War, all the buildings have catacombs like corridors that connect underground and connect with bomb shelters. Okay. <laughs> and they're very convenient in wintertime because it's just a shortcut from a building to a building. Yep. So all my male colleagues would do this. I would have to get out through the security, go to the car, undig it, drive to the parking lot, go through the security again. Can you guess why? Why I couldn't follow my male colleagues? No clue. Anybody has No a logical guess? reason anyway. Yeah. <laughs> The entrance to the bomb shelters and the corridors were through a man's bathroom. <laughs> sure. Sure, I can see. Anyways. Would be a huge hindrance. <laughs> anyway, speaking of equality, back to poker. I've seen giant change that happened in Detroit, in tech, in entrepreneurship, in VCs industries. I arrive at poker, and poker is honestly terrible. Yeah. Absolutely terrible towards women. I remember there was a chat about this. Yeah. Right. You guys had opinion and jump in. I was just starting in poker. I'm like, yeah, this thread is real. Mm -hmm. um, now, I now love poker. I want the game to get bigger. When I look at the numbers of 5% participation from women, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The easiest way to grow the game is just get more women to play. But there are some very real impediments to that. So it became a bit of my curiosity over the year, a bit of my pet peeve. And then I got uh, invited, uh, best things in life sometimes are completely serendipitous. I sort of had an opportunity kind of fall into my laps. Um, and the story went like this, before the World Series of Poker, I think it was Creasy, I think Creasy, um, 
uh, Gracie Foxen, mm -hmm. reached out to me and said, uh, somebody is trying to put in a little fund to put women, a few women up for, you know, free uh, entrance into a ladies World Series championship. Would you like to participate? I said, sure. And I wrote a check for $1,000 for just one seat, right? And after that, I think it was Katie Stone who came uh, also to a few of us and said, women who got the free seat, what if we offer them a, a one hour free coaching? Who, who wants to put up some time? I said, sure, no problem. Mm -hmm. And I remember tapping Phil and, and, and Chewy asking them to help as well. So I got assigned to three people or something. We had our lessons. And after that, one of them, by the name of Rachel, reached out after the World Series and said, me and five of my friends, we actually want to learn poker seriously. Can you give us some hints? Can you like help us? And I'm like, you know what? Uh, it's a good cause. I could spend a little bit of time mentoring you guys if you want to. They said, sure. And we formed the original, just a study group. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said, well, let's do this right. Let's create Discord. Let's set up some channels. Let's, you know, you post your hand histories. We're going to analyze it. We're going to have a theory channel. I'm going to start posting some topics there. Let's have a lesson 90 minutes once a week on Wednesdays. I'll find time. And that's kind of how it started. And then they, they told about this to their friends. And then, you know, a week later, there's eight of us. And a week later, there's 12 of us. And, uh, you know, I checked this morning, there's 50 of us. Um, and it was just, it just starting to take off like a wildfire. And I'm like, let me understand the demographics. Demographics, it will blow your mind. Most of the people are in their late 40s, 50s or more. A lot of them are moms. Many of them are single moms. They're sucker moms. They work full-time. They love poker. There are some people who are new. Some people play for 10, 20, 30 years. A lot of times they, they learn it from their brothers and fathers, but they never had opportunity to do so. Like life happens and it's just not a hobby that, honestly, this is where this um, inequality starts to crop, crop mm -hmm. up. Yep. You know, for every time I hear opinion that says, oh, of course people don't play poker. I mean, they're just not as smart as men. I just, you know, roll out my eyes. The economic opportunities is so freaking unfair. The level, the field is so unleveled. So it's just remarkable to see this massive movements of women who are, you know, towards, you know, later part of their lives feel like they can actually go pursue hobbies that they really want to do. And they're super serious about this. They're literally driving their kids to soccer, bringing them back, putting them to bed, and then putting multiple hours of study. They play online. They scrape you know, money that they can have to go play buy-ins of you know, life events on Saturdays and Sundays of 100, 150, 250 uh, type of stuff. Many of them dream of retiring and playing poker full-time. And, and I think poker community just doesn't understand how massive that that you know body of people are that are sort of isolated have no real means to find community want to study effectively want access to tools want access to latest and greatest be rush as consumers of technology once they know what to do mm -hmm. really lock mentorship you know can't afford to pay you know for private tutors some some do but most sure. of them don't so anyways um i am just super excited because what we are creating we are creating it is a study group it's completely free you know, it's starting to pop everywhere without got whatever Canadian members. I'm expecting Europe to wake up and, and join and we'll have to do something with our, with our lesson times and probably go even more virtual than we are right now. 
but it's been an absolute blast and i'm i'm just delighted to to continue to be a part of it and see where it goes yeah there's so i've i have a lot of follow-ups with this so bear yeah. with me but um so <clears throat> i'm not surprised at the demographic we actually we've been running the academy now for six years we've had somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 attendees 15% of our attendees are women. And if I had to get, if I had the ballpark, I would say that the average age is somewhere nearing 40. Um, so that, that part doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, what, what we've often found in speaking with them whenever they come in and uh, you know, talking with them, they're brilliant women. They're in the tech space, they're in the engineering space, yep. the science space. Like they have some pre- uh, disposition to the STEM, mm -hmm. uh, to the like STEM workforce or, or education, right? So it's no shock that they're kind of cherry picked for something like this, and they overcome those hurdles mm -hmm. in order to seek community, to mm -hmm. seek this type of stuff. Uh, Katie Stone is a very good friend of mine. She's had this passion and mission to try to grow within the game uh, for for women as well. Mm -hmm. And as has Jamie Kerstetter, who you alluded to, yep. uh, had that conversation with. On, on, the, the challenge that I see is that you're right in the sense that uh, poker stinks at marketing when it comes to this, but everything that you just said uh, that women lack in uh, the barrier of entry to poker, uh, aside from the economic disparity between women and men just generally in this country, we also suck at marketing in general in all of those areas, right? So uh, I... I hope you come up with a solution to this, but do you, do you have like ideas for how to help better get women over those barrier of entries? I have a lot of ideas. It's just a really big mission and we need help of a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, marketing to women better. Yes, absolutely. Um, there is a lot of room for improvements there. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, you know, the actual economic disparity needs to be needs to be more understood and kind of worked into the into the um, uh, pyramid, if you will. Correct. Uh, and I think just based on what I based on what I see in this group, I, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning from them probably more than they're learning from me. Or, or again, it's just a very synergetic synergetic relationship. Best things in life are are, are like that. And that, it's definitely a petri dish for me to study a lot of things about poker. And one of my biggest realizations and by the way it's not just about women i think it's very universal is that poker is best studied collectively it's it's while it's an antagonistic game while we're playing with each other although i would say it's a social too sure we are sharing the table there is a banter there is a sense of community everybody at the end of the day is peer with each other even when we compete with each other um but when it comes to studying it's even more important for it to be social and there is a and I spoke to a lot of top, top, top elite players, and the stories are always the same. They were part of the gang Correct. Yeah. coming up. They learn as a gang. Mm -hmm. They live as a gang. They survive as a gang, yep. right? They learn from each other. That experience of being part of a gang as you're learning, I think absolutely critical to success, but it doesn't exist in the poker fabrics today. Right. There is no platforms that allow you to form peer groups. Now... You know, my story of somebody new to poker, you know, who've had some successes, it's, it's got out there in the little, you know, crumbs here and there. And every time that happened, I would get a lot of notes from people that I've never heard. Now, most of them are men, 
and they would reach out to me and they would ask me a bunch of questions. They're always very similar questions. Can you share? What do you study? Where do you go? I want to, you know, learn poker. How do this efficiently? Do you have coaches? Can you recommend somebody? You know, and, and, and inevitably, is there a study group that I can join? And the answer is, I can't help. I can tell you the, 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 the tools that I use. Mm -hmm. But so I think there is just a huge void of the study group type infrastructure. Uh, people hang out around, you know, Twitter, but that's for something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is there is big pieces of tech that's missing to just make poker tools much more approachable, much more onboardable, much more understandable. Uh, that's that's the whole other conversation. Poker tech sucks. Yeah. One agreed. of my biggest like shocks getting from Silicon Valley to poker. I would assume, you know, poker would be very advanced with respect to tech. I mean, it's into crypto, it's into everything. There's smart geeks. There is a lot of correlation. Poker tech is awful in every possible it's the way. Worst. The everywhere. UI UX is like UI the worst UX across is the just, board. just the worst. Yeah. So, so obviously I'm itching to build a poker tech company. Like, sure. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's predestined. Uh, but if you look at uh, if you look at just where it's lacking, it's lacking in social, lacking to, in in communities. It's universal. It's not special for women. Uh, but obviously women have it worse because yes. they have even less outlets to sort of gang up together, study together, support each other, sweat each other. There's a huge aspect of this group is just moral support. Mm -hmm. And it is so, so, so freaking important. And then at some point in time, you obviously get to conversation about staking, right? I mean, poker is, is something where, you know, staking is a big part of being successful. Um, and... Um, it's really, really hard to come up with a solution for how women become sort of known enough to find themselves, you know, some economic means of being able to participate in the, you know, in the game. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's loaded, uh, but uh, you chip away at it. You've, you, made a, <laughs> <laughs> you made a lot of really good points there that uh, echo a lot of my beliefs. And I've had these con conversations uh, ad nauseum, uh, especially because, like, I'm close to people who are very passionate about growing this game. And I think the issue is those of, those of us in the position to actually impart some level of change at a mm -hmm. community level, we, we take our eye off the ball so much yeah. and get so distracted by these uh, kind of ancillary conversations that yes, need to be, they are problems that need to be corrected, but they're not the reason why the growth isn't there. And I'm mostly speaking to, uh, you know, a lot of the bullshit narratives that, that are very misogynistic in nature. Yeah. Uh, that you hear in commonplace, like women aren't as smart or they don't have access to as much money or, you know, some of these things may be partially true because of the wage well, gap. Well, second is probably true. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Um, but, and that they're treated poorly and like we need to clean up the environment. It's like all of that may have some level of truth to it, but that is certainly not what's preventing somebody from at least stepping in the arena. So it's not like we see 30% of women try poker and only 5% remain. Uh, maybe that is the case, but uh, I don't think so. I think largely it more speaks to the acquisition problem that poker as a whole has. I am, I am starting to be convinced that, well, first of all, poker is growing, right? It's very exciting to see. It's definitely a growing industry. At least tournament-wise, yeah. Well, I looked at some numbers, right? Once I started getting interested in this and entrepreneur, I have to go do some market research. And my first question was, well, what's the global pool of people who play poker? Do you guys want to venture guess how many people in the world play poker one form or another. I, I have an idea if we include like play money. Yeah, include play money. I think it's somewhere around 100 million. 
It's 120. Okay. So it's close enough. It's a mind-boggling number. Mm-hmm. What is the growth rate year over year? Uh, if I had to guess, yeah. I would think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20%. Yeah, it is. 20%? Yeah, yeah about 19 that's a lot. It's insane. Wow. Yeah. And obviously yeah. some of it then spills in all facets of poker, right? So it's a good time to be in poker. Yeah, like poker in my tech head. or anything else like this, right? Yeah, and you it's... see consumers coming in and the gaming is on the rise. And just generally this idea is my entertainment is gaming. And poker takes like the intellectual top probably of the world. So that's, that's kind of all good. Um, yeah, but same applies to women. It's just as in any tip of the iceberg, there's just so much that is completely invisible because there are barriers that are right. just so thick and so wide. Um, yeah, so if we, if we go from like, okay, there's a problem to what's the solution, right? Um, the original reason I even reached out to you a couple of days ago and said, hey, you know, can I come to a podcast? Can we talk about this? Um, what makes me excited about this group is that it's something that I think is a now really easy vehicle to get involved and help grow. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things, you know, it takes the village. Right. Now, the village is growing very fast. Like, we've gone from five people to 50, you know, over six months. I think we're going to go maybe from 50 to 500, you know, on, on the accelerated schedule yeah. from everything that I've seen. So, and there is a power in numbers. Yep. Um, and so... You know, how can anybody get involved? There's so many ways to involve. If you're running a, a learning site, reach out with us and, and, and give our members, you know, free access or, or you know, discount it to the point where economic opportunity isn't getting in the way. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, we actually have a lot of members. Right. Now, maybe we can make some sort of a group deal, right? Yep. That's good for everybody. I started tapping out pros, tapping pros and asking to come in with a guest lecture. Um, you know, I'm certainly both underqualified and overwhelmed with the idea of continuing to deliver, you know, a monthly, uh, weekly 90-minute lesson, uh, you know, to this growing, growing community. So I've got such a great support. We're, we're going to have Chewy, we're going to have Dinax, we're going to have uh, uh, Justin Saliba, we are going to have a number of people who responded and said, yeah, I'm going to come and give you a lecture. One lecture a year... 50 people doing this, basically full calendar yep. of remarkable lectures on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. We're going to invest in recording these things and putting it out there for members to be able to watch on their own times to creating, you know, learning content like that. Um, it's been really cool to watch the administrative side. It's just completely organic. You know, somebody steps in to run the website, somebody steps in to run the league. Oh, let me tell you about the league. The league is a super, super exciting. We... We want to motivate people to play. And again, some have economic opportunities to do so, some don't. So we said, okay, let's put one uh, month, one, one, one Wednesday a month, like three will be for lessons, but one will be for home game. Let's create a, a tournament for our members. So everybody loves that. We're going to do one next Wednesday is the first one. And then they said, you know what? Let's form a league. And people can win points for placing high in our tournaments. But at the same time, let's recognize open field tournaments. If you play somewhere, you win money, you win points. And a little bit like how Poker Go does this. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, top three women in the letterboard, I'm going to put, put them in the you know, 1K tournaments of their choosing. Yeah, yeah. They could play in ladies mm-hmm. events or somewhere sure. else. So I said, I'll, yeah. I'll donate 3K, right? Three, three places like that. Everybody absolutely loves this. The league is, is growing leaps and bounds. We already have scoring going and whatnot. There's people who said, okay. 
I'm going to play lots of tournaments this <laughs> yeah. year. Right, 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 this yeah. thing right. really have mm -hmm. an incredible effect. So if somebody else wants to jump in and offer, you know, staking deals like that, it's not even staking. It's just yeah. like done 8,000 bucks. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. a free roll for somebody. Right. It's so freaking important. Mm -hmm. It's super important for people because it gives them chances and gives them opportunity. Mm -hmm. But above that, you know, if anybody who is in the staking game, you know, take a notice. Maybe you actually can offer staking deals for top three or top five or top 10, right? Mm -hmm. Now it becomes more and more interesting. So... It's sort of the very concrete vehicle that I think can rally the poker community around to say it's a shared experiment. Mm -hmm. Let's see how far we can together take it. You, you kind of answered a question that I wanted to ask, but I, I still kind of want to ask it yeah, please. Uh, from a resource standpoint. Uh, so first and foremost, I think like what you guys are doing in uh, you know, kind of acknowledging that there needs to be a cultural shift, but sticking a pin in that and actually addressing the tactical things that can be corrected in order to give people more opportunity i think that that is incredibly important and the notion of keeping your eye on the ball uh the question i was going to ask mm -hmm. is can this scale and i think the league is a good example of yes it can mm -hmm. but like wholeheartedly oh as yeah far as i i absolutely think it's scale well if if there is one thing that i learned in my you know years and now decades of entrepreneurship knowing how to scale your business or your project or your social movement, it's kind of equivalent of ICM in poker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where all the it's money are. It's for poor are. people? <laughs> no, <laughs> this is where all the money are, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Everything else is just the table stakes. Correct. You mm -hmm. have to have a great prod, a great vision, great team. You know, maybe you will mean cash. Yep. You know, where things get really interesting is that can you actually scale? Scale breaks everything if you don't do this right. Scaling something requires a completely different set of skills, leadership structures, you know, sort of everything else. So whenever I start a project, if I cannot conceive how it's going to be managed at scale, I'm not going to get started because mm -hmm. you, you ain't going to win the final table. Right. Uh, what I really love about the way the movement is operating and the way we're doing it is it's, it's designed to be infinitely scaled from start. Completely virtual. It runs on a set of, um, a set of scalable tools. Um, the um, the self-governing aspect of it is going to be scalable, you know, for a very very long time. I could see this having thousands of members. I don't know about ten thousands or hundreds of thousands, but I'm pretty sure if we get to that side, we'll figure out how to do that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you do you think that there is some sort of dilution that takes place in the the actual learning teaching mechanism uh, as it begins to reach scale? I don't think so. You know, I remember going back to to, to grid dynamics. You know, we, we, when we got started, I really had an incredible brain power working for me. The way I started the company, it's kind of an interesting anecdote. So I'm, I'm sitting in my, you know, in my kitchen in, uh, in California, and I'm literally playing with a globe, right? I had a globe, I'm spinning it, and I'm kind of thinking, where do I want to put my engineering team? And I know I don't want it to be in Silicon Valley, because while you get the best talent, a, it costs enormous money, and right. B, you actually have incredibly low loyalty. Mm -hmm. Because in the end of the day, you know, any great engineer can get, you know, half a million dollars more from Google any day, and right. like, good luck competing. So I'm like, I wanted to find, and the metrics that I said to myself, I said, I want to find the highest number of IQ points per dollar that I can get. And um, out of curiosity, I go to Google, and I type... ACM World Champions 2026. ACM is essentially programming world championship, mm -hmm. championships. 
And what do you know? You know, a team who won world championships that year was a university team from this little town called Sarad of Russia. So I ask myself, could they possibly be hireable? This is my favorite mm -hmm. story, by the way. This is one of my favorite stories ever of all time. So I go find them, and it turns out that they are, and I just hire them. That, that was kind of a start of grid. So I work with these amazing people, right? And, and then, you know, they're doing some amazing stuff. They're learning cutting-edge technologies. They're building clouds for PayPal. So they're loving it. So they tap their friends. They tap their friends. And I remember a year from the start. I go there, and we have our first corporate offsite. Dead, dead winter in Russia, you know, Volga River, where Saratov is completely frozen. We are like skiing across the, 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 you know, the river and, and talking about business. And there's 18 of us. And one of my key guys says, Victoria, you realize that there is a hard stop to when we will start scaling. We can get to 25 people at the same quality. And after that, everything will plummet. Mm -hmm. And we'll never be the company that can do the hard stuff that we can do you know, simply because we have to drop our standards. Well, right. grid dynamics today is, I don't know how many thousands, you know, maybe approaching 10,000 or something. And we certainly did not drop any standards. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I've seen how this goes. I think it actually works the other way. The bigger you are, the more successful you are. Now you have power to actually attract bigger talent. True. Do so on a more consistent basis. Start branching and create sub-communities. Start finding moderators who want to come in and start you know, want to make a difference. Now, I'm very optimistic that this thing can scale and scale and scale. You know, let's, let's see how far it can go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have to tell you, I see a lot of real world applications here if you do pull this off. Like, why couldn't education as a whole just be crowdsourced this way? And oh, don't even get me started on my I mean, theory. I imagine, how to, I imagine how we have to reform similar views. the education. Yeah, I, I imagine we have similar <laughs> views, especially just having been in the quote unquote teaching space for like six years. Um, it just seems so inefficient as it is. Oh, it's, it's the most, one of the most backward things like ever. Yeah, yeah, no, I think education needs to be completely re, re engineered, re architected, re innovated. It, it seems it's, like, um, yeah, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. It seems I, like I, I probably share the same passion as you. And, and I'm, I'm very pragmatic in the sense that I just want to roll up when I see something that is just done badly for all the theories for the greater forces at work, which, which I enjoy and I have them because I need to know the why. I just want to go solve the problem right here, yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of interesting that if you, sell, if you solve the right problem in a small instance and figure out how it scales, Correct. you really address the both spectrums. Don't go after the scale first. Right. You can't. Solve the small problem, which is indicative of the big problem, then figure out how to scale. Yeah, root cause analysis. I mean, it's no shock you're a computer scientist. This is, this is like 101 for, for what you have to understand. Uh, I, I personally like struggle with this a lot. Like I take the idea of homelessness uh, or, or people who are like food insecure. And I think about like how terrible of a problem it is and how ridiculous it is this day and age that we, we are still living in some sort of capacity where everybody's not taking care of. The numbers of. are terrible, right? There's like a sizable percentage of Americans who are like hungry on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, America is like, you it's know, uh, as far as like countries with hungry people go, America is like at the bottom of the list. And you know? yet, even in this country, we have a very legitimate hunger problem. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Uh, as, as somebody who kind of grew up in that economic insecurity where you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, like, I get it. 
And what I struggle with is you see a homeless person on the corner and your instinct is to help solve their, solve their problem, right? So maybe you want to give them $20. And then you kind of realize that this isn't solving any sort of root cause. This is slapping a Band-Aid on something and nobody's really better served for this in, in, the, nor in the near term or the long term. And then whenever you shift your focus then to, okay, well, how do I get to the root cause? How do I solve this, solve this more scale? You just get overwhelmed by the fact that there yep. are children starving and dying in Africa. That's and right. it's like, what, what are we even supposed to do? Uh, so talking with you is so, so important. And uh, I think it's like so educational, at least from my perspective, because you have done these things in uh, other industries such as tech where you're you know coming into something brand new with 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 cloud uh sourcing uh, i can't imagine that that was a super solvable problem out of the gate uh no yeah definitely like Redynamics dynamics was a huge innovator and we've uh we've done several big things that's never been done before we've done them well and you know that's ultimately it was well timed that's why it was a success um but I think there is just a repeatable pattern here, uh, which is, to me, I kind of think about it visually as kind of, you know, business plan in a form of a V, if mm -hmm. you will. And, and, and you kind of start drawing this V at the top by picking up a very specific anecdote that is indicative of just a massively repeatable case. Like, for example, yeah. your example with a homeless guy on the corner. Mm -hmm. You kind of start there and you say, you know, this guy, his name is Will, you know, he's on that particular corner for a reason. Here is his story. Mm -hmm. And then you say, you know, the reason why Will is interesting is because Will's story is indicative of stories of millions of others like that, right? You kind of recognize that there is a big problem, but the big problem is overwhelming. So now you can focus on Will. Right. So what would it take for Will to be, you know, not just fed once, but successfully out of poverty? Now you start kind of dropping down, right? The first axis of the V that comes down is like, how do you solve that particular problem? But solve it on a sustainable basis. Let's say you can come up with a mechanism that's going to, you know, get, you know, will off the street and give them a sustainable way to stay off the street. So then you start climbing back up and say, well, now how do we scale it to millions of other wills, right? Right. So that's kind of a very, very basic framework, but I think it works just remarkably well. Yeah. Um, and I found it to be just very simple, but very pragmatic. So yeah. take one instance of a massive, well, we'll start with, okay, problem is worth solving because it's just epic, right? Back to my, to my earlier points, like problems are not epic, probably just not even worth our, right. you know, we, we, we have short lifetime, long, long lifetime, depending on your scale, but you know, epic things kind of worth the trouble. So pick something that is epic and there's a lot of epic problems. So, but then, not to get overwhelmed, focus on one prototypical example of that in this particular will, or, you know, this, this group of five women in LA, right. who, who are just like, you know, probably tens of thousands, but you can't do anything about tens of thousands for a while, but you could do something about this five. Now, figure out the solution that helps here, very specifically, and get it to work, but from the beginning, build in the scaling. Right. If we can solve this here, can it be replicated? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is yes, then yeah, start slowly climbing up the, you know, the second part of the. That's v. where all the infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Much, Isn't so. this kind of like the idea from like Plato's Republic, where it's like if you can find goodness in a person, you can then extrapolate that out and like make that into a city. Where like you have to start with like a very simple 
guideline for what you're trying to solve. And then if you can find that within one, you can then find that within all sort of idea. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you connect the dots in a variety of different ways. The thing is, is that it's kind of like one of the things, like success basically breeds success. You start small, you get your wings. Right. And then, then you learn how to fly and then wings grow bigger and just good things happen. We, mm -hmm. we talked about this, but well, we talked about this is I asked you a question and then you gave me a very <laughs> profound knowledge. <laughs> but we talked about the way that success works and success is a habit and a skill, less so something that happens. And there's a couple of different ways that you can go about finding success. Mm -hmm. So if you can share that for the people that you shared with me, that'd be good. Um, are we on to the gardening metaphor or uh, something else? We're on to the... <laughs> oh, what, what are the plants called? Priority plants. Priority plants. That was, oh. that was my framework, and I'm very glad to see I that really, London, London adopted it. I really, really enjoyed that concept. <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's a really cool concept. Yeah, well... But I was going with this is we were on a hike and before we yeah. went on our hike to uh, coast to coast from St. Bees to Robin Hood's Bay, uh -huh. we, you made it very clear without actually telling me that I fucked up, <laughs> guiding me to telling me that I fucked up <laughs> by making I, me realize I was I not taking it that. as a... <laughs> She made me realize I was not taking the project as seriously as I should. Especially. Oh, that was our little hike in Red Rocks, right? Yes, that was our Red Rock hike where yes. I learned that I was being very selfish and not a team member. Uh, so from Thanks. there, you didn't like. She didn't tell me like you're being selfish. You didn't right, say right. that. Yeah. You said, "Look, I'm not going to tell you what to do." But when you decided to go on this thing, there's a lot of things that have to have that you have to do to make it happen because it's yeah. not just you. It's a team effort. Yep. Me, you, Johan, right? Yep. So you had to get stuff. You had to get your passport done, and you had to get your training done for the hike because there's three people, and it's not just you. Yep. And if you want to go fast, you go alone. And if you want to go far, you go with others. There you go. And you told me this. He's a, he's a, he's a good Student. Good student. He's a good student. It's not over. So we talked about <laughs> the idea of like how to become successful, not just for the trip in itself, but for things that you care about, right? And one way is you find something that you like doing and then you work on that every day. Like that's mm -hmm. like the grinding mechanism where you kind of know what you have to do and then you do it every you do it every single day. It doesn't have to be the biggest thing on your plate, but you try and mm -hmm. you get better every day. And then there's like for the more drastic methods and the things that you want to get done in a short amount of time, like the epic journeys, but then, yes. then go into longer periods of scale is like the all-in right. method of success where you don't do anything else and you only prioritize that one thing for as long as you possibly can until you get to either the process you want to have to then start okay. grinding it or you just go until you can't anymore and you okay. use that energy that you have until you burn out. That's very true. Yeah, you've yeah. remembered it and remembered it. Yeah, well. I told you I listened to you. <laughs> yeah, I, listen. I, I also told one more thing, and it's really, really important. It's that sometimes you just have to mock your hand. And a lot of time people get so attached to the things that I've done and they become sort of, you know, toxic toxic assets that hold them back. Mm -hmm. They're no longer assets anymore. They're actually liability. They were assets once when you started. But now it's something that is actually kind of holding you back, but you're too emotional attached. You think about all the, all the effort and money you've put into it and, and you're not letting this go. And it's actually holding you back because, you know, you know if you put a rest to it and it opens up all this time and, and mental capacity and emotional capacity and financial capacity to go actually, you know, get engaged in something else. So part of success is also 
not only starting the things and you know watering the plants that matter, but when you decided it no longer matters for whatever reason or you know it just can't be successful, uh, you just have to mark your hands, right? Yeah. So I'm, that's that's another yeah. really. I've been watering a dead part. money tree there in, you go. in the house dead for quite some wood, time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Doesn't people, really seem to produce any leaves. Exactly, mm. exactly, exactly. And then sometimes you know you you're just creating yeah. Yeah. You know, can, big wet pool of crap. Can you talk about your experience a little bit with developing all these companies uh, with regards to that sunken cost fallacy? Like, yeah. have you had to just exit and say, like, look, this is a failure. I need to move on yeah. from this project. Yeah, very much so. After, you know, I'm in a company at number 12. Uh, I would have to really count how many women are like that. But, but absolutely. Um, I have uh, gone on starting companies. I felt extremely strong on. I've made massive investments. Uh, I thought, you know, I was running into really terrible variants with these things really not taking off because they should. But at some point in time, you just have to realize the reality of it. And the more you deal in reality, the more successful you are going to be. Emotions sometimes get in the way. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, the story of Green Dynamics itself is a really, really, really strange and funny story. So I, maybe, you know, I could, I could tell yeah, a little please. bit because it illustrates this point. Um, so when I, when I was leaving Sun and I was kind of believing in this future of cloud computing, I really wanted to be on the technology side, on the product side. I wanted to build essentially the, I didn't want to build the cloud. I wanted to build the, the tech that would allow people to build clouds. I want to build cloud fabrics. And my idea was that a lot of people who were in the um, server space, making servers, renting servers, something like that, they would really much rather be cloud operators they wouldn't know how. So I can give them soft that can turn the server capacities and data centers into the clouds. And the people who had applications, you know, they will need some sort of a fabric to deploy their applications in the cloud. So uh, I, I wanted to create tech layer, a platform that just turns capacity into clouds and then make it consumable, right? So I thought, brilliant idea, definitely, you know, there's a market for that. I put together the business plan. I start going up and down Sand Hill Road, which is where all the Silicon Valley VCs are. I get appointments for like all the biggest VC funds and they just look at me like, or past me. It's just like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, what do you mean what I'm talking about? I mean, that's clear the future, right? So I had no credentials, I had no exits, you know, I was nobody. You know, my word didn't carry any, you know, any meaning. And, you know, the business plan didn't make sense. And I probably didn't know how to package people either. Yeah. So that sort of goes nowhere. And I go, okay, well, if nobody's going to give me money, I will just have to self-fund this company. I find an engineering team, but now I need to pay them. So the interesting side story is the reason I created a consulting company in the first place to create my own funding mechanism for my product company. Mm. So I created two companies. I created a real company that was called Grid Dynamics, which was supposed to be product company. And I created a second company that I called Grid Dynamics Consulting Services, which is supposed to be a temporary thing that just goes out, offers engineering, brings in revenue that I can spend building the product. Works remarkably well. Without the first year, I got million dollars worth of consulting services revenue and I spent every single dollar of it building technology. Yeah. Next year, I made $2.4 million in consulting revenue, and I spent every single dollar of it building my tech. 
So now, two years later, and by the way, now I don't sleep at all because I run my tech company at night and consulting company at day, right? right, this, right. Is, this is how I get to three hours a day. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, anyways, uh, two years later, I have a prototype. It's amazing. It could take fabrics of servers and turn it into a cloud. And then you could take applications, just kind of throw it out there and gets deployed and gets charged whatever, you know, on-demand consumption it has had. I'm like, okay. So I can finally get funded and I could, you know, put my consulting services to rest and just focus on the thing that I want to do. I take it for a spin on a single road. I get nothing. People look at my prototype, they listen to my speech and like, what are you talking about? You know, then SaaS starting to take off, like Salesforce is becoming a thing, like everybody is cloud is SaaS, SaaS, SaaS. Like Amazon is already on the market starting to sell cloud as a capacity, but it's the only one. Mm -hmm. I get absolutely nowhere. So at that point in time, I had to like face the truth. And the truth is my consulting services company, it just freaking grows like weed. It doubles every six months. There's such a huge demand in the trenches to go build clouds, clouds, clouds. My, my customers are Microsoft. Uh, eBay, PayPal, Yahoo, uh, right? Uh, Google later became customer. I'm helping all these huge companies build their clouds, and there is unsaleable interest to have more and more. And here I'm spending every dollar of this on building tech that nobody needs. So I kill my tech company, and I rename Great Dynamics Consulting Services into Great Dynamics, and like never look back, and I become you know, CEO of successful services company never intended to do that. That's maybe one example of how yeah. you just have to listen to the market and you have to, you have to do what you have to do. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really, really fantastic story and, and one that uh, probably more people in the entrepreneurial space need to hear. As somebody who's like an average Shark Tank watcher, yeah. I always find it fascinating <laughs> how people can come in with just nothing but a sinkhole of an idea or product or service or whatever, where it's just abundantly clear, the business proposition isn't there, the, uh, the ability to, to find ROI and the sales pitch is just like bad, but they're so emotionally married to this idea that originated in solving some sort of problem that they really truly thought needed to be solved. Yeah. They can't get past the fact that they're seven or eight figures in debt now and unable to just pull the plug because the scary part is, is not, losing more money, being more in debt, going broke in this process. The scary part is, what do you do the next day once you've killed your baby? There is that part of it, and people are just scared. People are scared of change. I, I, I have the name for projects like that. I call it a luggage without wheels or handle. Mm, yeah. <laughs> You're just dragging it, it along. Just, I mean, it's, it's heavy, right? You yeah. have it. You, you don't want to drop it in the middle mm -hmm. of the road. I mean, it has some of your possessions, but like you, you, I mean, it's just so much effort to just dragging the damn thing. You commit your life to dragging it, yeah. right? You're not even using it. So you just have to let go of the luggage without handles. Yeah. At what point did you realize that what you wanted to create was not worth anything? in like the same way that you thought it was you got to listen to the market at some point it's it's kind of interesting because as entrepreneurs part of us is disregard the market voice when right. we have a distinct vision and i've been there so many times you know most of stuff that i've done it was incredibly contrarian well to be innovative you have to be you have to be and and sometimes you just have to have a lot of inner strengths to just disregard 
all the banal wisdom that people throw at you for why that is not the case. But you have incredibly strong conviction that you're right. And that conviction does have to check against some obvious milestones. Right. And you have to allow yourself to question that your convictions could still be wrong. And then over time, you either strengthen your conviction or you lessen your conviction. At some point in time, you arrive at the inevitable confusion, conclusion that you were wrong. This is where you'll have to let ego go. And you have to just trade in reality and, and, and do, do the right thing. So this roughly took uh, two years? With that particular company, it took two years. Yeah, sometimes it's shorter. I mean, one of the really important principles of Silicon Valley and innovation is called fail fast. And it's actually you build it into your product. You build it into your company. You have a hypothesis. Before you put huge amount of money or effort or time, you need to be able to very quickly validate, you know, is your comp comp you know, hypothesis false true? And if it does, that's what feeds your conviction in the, in the right way. Uh, more often than not, you discover that it doesn't work at least out of the box, at least the way you thought about it. And now you have the next fork in the road, which is either to, okay, so, you know, the idea that you thought isn't going to work, so kill it, or it's not going to work the way you thought, but you've discovered some insights, so now you can pivot and right. try to have a different hypothesis, right? And, and so that's, that's the fun of entrepreneurship. That's the fun of business. It's an incredibly complex game. Yeah. I would say it's much more complex than poker. I just have that many yeah. more variables. They, it, it's got its theory. It's got its uh, definitely risk rewards. But I it's very, very yeah. rich as far as decision fabrics goes. I definitely like and enjoy greatly that when it comes to the entrepreneurial type of stuff or things in that like tech in nature, failing is part of the game and it's part of the fun. Where it's like you try really hard and sometimes like you fuck up and that's okay. Like you're supposed to fail because if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. Actually, this is kind of why I love poker so much. Uh, poker speaks to me as the, the best model of the real life that I've ever come across. I agree. I always well, say this. It's like a sandbox for, for yeah, real life. Yeah, and so the amount of failure that you learn to accept in poker is probably extreme. I mean, let's be real. If you are dusting 85% of your entrepreneurial opportunities, you're probably not really going to be very successful. Right. You can't afford <laughs> right. to dust that much. Yeah. But the variance is high. You are going to lose some. You are going to win some. Um, and it just teaches you a lot of the mental framework, how to, how to deal with risk-reward. But also, like, if you're in the pot, you, there's just so many metaphors, right, that just work, uh, that help me rationalize this. If you're in a pot, you never were supposed to be in, it gets uglier and uglier. You decide if you want to stay and put more money in it, right, or mock and move to another one. You know, business is very much like that. Whether, whether you're talking about poker or business, how did you per personally go through separating signal from noise? Ah, well, that's the ultimate mastery, isn't it? I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the eye of the beholder. Because, I mean, when Sometimes things that look like noise, like my favorite quote is, uh, goes something like, uh, I might butcher it, but, uh, you know, most people miss opportunities because it's dressed in overalls and like work, right? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like what could be viewed as the noise by others the insightful eye takes as a signal mm -hmm. uh, and that makes all the difference and that's that but the other way is true as well yeah. is that some some data points are you know truly load carrying and others is just noise you gotta filter it out that that i find to be uh 
at least from the outside looking in, quite the struggle when you're talking about like real world stuff. In poker, obviously we get conditioned very quickly not to look at results as uh, the signal. Um, but to your point, uh, to, to a skillful individual who's already deprogrammed uh, being a results-oriented thinker, those results actually do carry some weight if you're able to gather enough data and see. Like, I, I, can, yeah. I can very quickly uh, determine if somebody is a winning or losing poker player based yeah. off of a handful of results exactly. of pots. Exactly. Right? And I imagine in the business world, it's very similar, but how do you listen to the well, market? The, the metaphor, yeah. I mean, the, the metaphor that, that I always have in mind, it's, it's, it's more of a way to kind of conceptualize it rather than answer the question how, because how, it, it always depends. But it's a little bit... Okay, you know, you're outside, low, low light pollution, starry night, you look up and you see billions of stars. Mm -hmm. These are your raw data points. I mean, they just, the amount of them is kind of overwhelming. Yeah. The, real, the real trick is you can squint and some of the stars are more important than others and you start seeing constellations. Mm -hmm. So different eye will pick up different constellations. This is the originality in, in, in business. This is the difference between success and failure. Yeah. I mean, the, the numbers are overwhelming. You can apply modern you know, data sciences, which will actually show you objective trends and whatnot. But where I think the, uh, you know, the true genius kinds of, kind of comes in, this is a combination of experience, original insight, intuition, you know, whatever you might want to call it. But it's really, you're looking at these billions of stars. But for some reason, you pick the right constellation, and then you say, this is it. This Really, the you know this is the unicorn that I right. see out of all of these signals, and and I believe in it. And I'm going to go after it. Well, isn't this kind of the sense? method of like process-oriented thinking as a whole? Where like once you had your idea to start Grid Dynamics and like found what you really enjoyed doing and found a way to like scale it and make it work, you're like oh, this is how you do it. I'm just going to do this until it works. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit also. I was interesting. We were. We were we're hanging out with Chui yesterday and talking about a bunch of different things. And one of the things that we talked about that I think has a little bit of a, of a reference to uh, what we're talking about now. When you go through a process of growth, growth of the company, and I think personal growth is not similar as well, there's times to be open-minded and there's times to be closed-minded. And when you're in an open-minded state, you basically invite any ideas that could be challenging what you're doing. And it's really important to be able to open to a question and open to challenge and open to say, well, I am driving, you know, down this road. Maybe I should be going somewhere Learning else. to drive. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so when you're an open mind, you're sort of continuously open to be challenged and maybe redefined, right? But you can't constantly be in it because you're actually not making progress. You're wondering in that state. Right. And sometimes you need to wonder, but if all you do is wondering, uh, you know, that it's just not a high productivity state. At some point in time, you're wondering, since we had that conversation we're with you. Yeah, you're meandering. That's fine <laughs> to be meandering sometimes. It's very important to be meandering and be open-minded. But, but at the same time, if you meander your whole life, you're probably not going to produce much. Uh, maybe you'll <laughs> find part of gold, but, you know, rarely it's that easy. Yeah. So you got to arrive to some conclusions at the end. And once you've decided you understand what you're, why you're doing something, what you're doing, and how you're going to get there, you've got to close your mind. And you've got to get into a tunnel vision of, I'm going to get there, and I'm just going to execute. And if I am just trying to get somewhere, 
I am not interested in a massively disruptive thoughts that begins to question why I'm doing it in the first place. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some, sometimes so, it's not so even about bit, thoughts. A little bit of both. Right. Sometimes it's not even about thoughts. It's about like outside external factors where it's like someone says, hey, you should do this. It's like, well, I have my, I have my plan. I have my process. I know what works. I'm going to do that. It happens a lot. And I have methods for dealing with it, obviously. But let's say we're trying to launch this product. And all of a sudden, there is some new, you know, variance comes in, like there is a competitor with a similar product. Or there's something happening out there, right, that, that like matters. So we need to take this in. Or there's a brilliant idea that maybe we could do it later. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they say, okay, I'm going to actually schedule time to think about it. But it's not going to be this morning. It's not going to be tomorrow. We're going to schedule to think about it, you know, next month. <laughs> or... You know, I will say, okay, let's start thinking about it and studying it in parallel, but we are not changing these plans. You know, I'm famous to say, and a plan is a plan until it's no longer a plan. Yeah. You know, when we arrive to the conclusion that we have to do something different, we're going to stop and reorient. But until that happens, we, we just continue to execute. I think that that's like a brilliant explanation of kind of the scientific method in motion, right? It's like you, you start with this hypothesis, you test it, you question it, you're open to a different sort of pushback and uh you know feedback that you may have to pivot or go one way or the other but once you, it's very important to move off of that step and actually get to the analysis part so like once you've gotten to the analysis part you come to a conclusion you say this is what works this is what doesn't here's all the fat i'm gonna trim and then you go back through and just refine yeah well that's that's like managing complex systems and it's and it's full glory yeah yeah, I mean, which is life, right? Yes. Like, what's more complex exactly. of a exactly. system than life? Exactly. Uh, I could keep this conversation rolling forever, but I know that you are itching to get down to PokerGo to play the 15K. Indeed. We are all rooting for you. Uh, Thank you. I really, really want to invite you to come back and do this as many times as you're willing to. Anytime. I'm, uh, this is fun. Uh, I have to say, you, you guys... You guys are my guilty pleasure. Good. So it's <laughs> like, you know, we've, we've alluded to the fact that I'm a little bit busy most of the time. Um, you know, three businesses, and I am actually legitimately trying to be really good at poker. So I would say put probably more than full-time, you know, worth of work into poker now, now as well. And I need to hike sometimes and whatnot. So finding like hour and a half to just go listen to you guys only an hour on 1.5 x speed or, yeah. or whatever yeah exactly <laughs> but the thing is the truth you know truth is is that I, I still find ways occasionally to to tune in because you're just so much fun good awesome. I, i'm glad <laughs> man i remember we, we were on a hike when we were on the hike we had a conversation about the podcast actually and i was like well, it seems like the podcast just might fucking die. And you're like, well, how do we not have that happen? Or if that happens, like, what's the plan after that? And now here we are, episode 201. Welcome. Go. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, you we did it. Through. We've made it. Well, we thank you so it. much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for the platform. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, mm -hmm. what, where can they find more about Pocket Queens? Oh, yeah. Well, pocketqueens.poker. Okay, easy. Uh, or, or on Twitter. Uh, yeah, so just, just to reiterate, you know, ladies of poker, if you're looking for the community, you're looking for the league, you're looking for opportunity to play more, study more, learn more, uh, you know, join, it's completely free, it's completely virtual, uh, pocketqueens.poker, you know, submit your application and, and you're in. And also huge call to action to uh, actually a poker pro community offer to give us free lecture to poker educational site um offer us content uh to people who can step in tours right 
You donate passes to your events to people all the time. Consider donating some passes to tournaments to us. We're going to make sure that only people who actually win them will qualify and they'll have a shot. It makes huge difference in, uh, in their lives. I love it. I love the mission. Uh, we can talk a little bit more off air, but like we're happy to contribute any way, shape, That'd or form. That'd be great. That Let's definitely talk about that offline. Definitely. Um, so pokerqueens.poker. You can find more information there. Pocket queens. Pocket queens. Pocket queens. Poker. But you but also buy pokerqueens.poker. <laughs> for the you'll sake of SEO. You'll, you'll find us. Get the yes. redirect in there. Yes. It was that doc. Uh, it was like a docu-series. I think you're right. Documentary. Mm -hmm. I actually yeah. think you're right. Yep. Um, that's going to do it for us. Uh, thank you guys so much, Victoria. Thank you so much for joining My us. Pleasure. It was a complete pleasure. Uh, if you haven't already, please like subscribe, leave a comment below. If you have any questions for Victoria, uh, regarding business or her, uh, her path in poker, please leave a comment Twitter, below. Just, and, and, and you could, you could reach me out on, on Twitter. Yeah. My PM is open. Everybody reaches Everyone out. Everyone give anyways, her a follow. So whatever. Yes. I'll get to it. Victoria, Victoria L underscore 64. There it is. Correct. There it is. Uh, we're going to be back tomorrow. We're going to be joined by Haralabob Vulgaris. Haralabis Vulgaris for those not... Harry Potter. Yeah, Harry Potter, if you will. <laughs> uh, he's going he's gonna to tell us all about how to create profitable betting models, I hope. We're going to try to get this thing out of the gutter. Uh, thank you guys so much. We're going to be back noon tomorrow, uh, and then we take off for Florida and the Bahamas. So we're going to be a podcast on the road yep. for the next few weeks. Uh, we'll see you guys all then. Peace.